At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Vous écoutez RTL. RTL Grand Soir. Back in 2017, a major food controversy erupted in France. The media would dub it Couscous Gate. Yes, the technique of adding gate to a word to name a scandal has crossed the Atlantic. But this was more than just a silly food argument. Like the original gate scandal, Watergate, Couscous Gate was actually very political. Samia Bazile is a reporter in Paris. She brought us this story. As she explains, it started with a member of the French parliament named Florian Philippot. Florian Philippot was the vice president of the National Front, the main French far-right party. A few months after an election, a far-right activist published a picture with Florian Philippot and a few other people on Twitter. They were eating what appears to be a delicious couscous. Couscous is a dish that comes from the Berbers, an ethnic group in North Africa. It's semolina that's been rolled and steamed, topped with a stew of vegetables and meat or fish. Because of its origin, some people here in France view it as a symbol of immigration, more specifically, North African immigration. So when this photo went up, some supporters of the National Front saw it as an endorsement of that immigration. Supporters of the far-right party expressed their anger on Twitter. One person tweeted, When I go to Strasbourg, I eat the local specialty, the chucrut royale. Chucrut is a traditional dish from the east of France. Another suggested that Philippot should be kicked out of the party and that everyone should eat chucrut, not couscous, to celebrate his departure. Filippo himself said his critics were idiots and that if they tried couscous, they would see how good it is. But there was one reaction that I found most intriguing. Some people said the debate had no grounds because the North African countries of Algeria and Tunisia used to be French colonies. Therefore, they argued, couscous is technically French. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. French colonialism helped spread France's culinary influence across the globe. The Vietnamese banh mi wouldn't be the dish we know today without French bread. Colonialism also brought new foods, like couscous, to France. And with those foods came strong reactions in a country that takes great pride in its cuisine. Today we're asking... What does it mean for a food to be considered French? And when the French leave their mark on another culture's cuisine, how do people from that group feel about it generations later? Reporter Samia Bazile will share stories of two different foods that have crossed borders as a result of French colonialism. Later on, we'll talk about how French food influenced cuisine in Vietnam with dishes like banh mi and pho. But first, couscous. Here's Samia. Couscous is one of my favorite foods but I've never tried to cook it myself. 
I leave that to my mom. My mom is from Algeria, an Arab country that was a French colony for over a century. So when my mom was born there, she was considered French. She became Algerian four years later, in 1962, when her country gained its independence after a long, bloody war. In the first years after independence, a lot of French people who were living in Algeria, along with many Algerians, moved to France. And some people in France traveled to Algeria for the first time. My dad was one of them. In the 70s, he went for a couple of years to teach physics. My mom was working at the library of the local university when she met him. They fell in love. But after his teaching post was finished, he had to go back to France. My parents missed each other so much that he asked my mom to come live with him. But... Marrying a French guy was inconceivable. So it had nothing to do with him being French. It was just that he wasn't Muslim. He could have been American or German. The fact that he didn't share our religion was the issue. My mom's family was also scared about what could happen to her if she moved to France. A lot of Algerians were leaving for France, looking for work, which led to a backlash from some French people. Around this time, an Algerian tourist named Habib Grimzi was murdered while visiting. Soldiers threw him from a moving train. Grimzi was 26, about my mom's age, when he was killed. And that wasn't an isolated case. Groups of men organized what they called ratonade, which is a racist term that specifically refers to violence towards North Africans. In 1973, close to 50 Algerians were killed, but most of the court cases ended up dismissed. At the end of that year, a bomb exploded at the Algerian consulate in Marseille, in the south of France. The police never identified the perpetrators. So everyone told me not to go to France, that I would get killed, that they killed Algerians there. My mom was frightened, of course, but she was in love with my father. She decided to go anyway. She packed up her stuff and boarded a ferry to Marseille. She made her way to the north of France, where my father lived but it was so different from what she was used to. The weather there is more like England. I mostly stayed home. People who came over joked that I was recreating Algeria in the apartment because I turned the heat way up. She felt homesick. She missed her family, her friends, her country, and of course, the food. In Algeria, we ate couscous with relatives, with friends, at home, every week. Couscous is a family dish that we eat when everyone's home on the weekend. Even before you're out of the womb, you know what couscous is. But traditionally, people don't eat it in restaurants. In Algeria, you never pay for couscous. When there is a funeral, People are invited to uh, have couscous. When there is a marriage, people are invited to have a couscous. This is Nassima Ouramoun. Nassima is a marketing professor and researcher at Kedge Business School in France. She comes from Kabylia, a mountainous region in the north of Algeria, where she grew up eating lots of couscous. A few years ago, Nassima co-authored a study about how people eat couscous in France. 
And I found fantastic the opportunity because, yes, I felt couscous has so many meanings that it was interesting to dig a little bit uh, into it. Nasima told me that couscous is not just about food. This is supposed to give the baraka, the baraka. Uh, so good luck. Uh, so good luck, a good, uh, you know, uh, good spell. So it's all positive in a sense. And there's also the preparation and how for uh, weddings, for example, you have all these women from the family that want to cook their couscous for their guests. It's not about really the couscous, but the moment we share couscous has always some kind of message. All this explains why my mom missed couscous so much when she first moved to France. But even though she'd seen women making couscous plenty of times, she had never made it herself. My mom never forced us to learn how to make couscous or do any cooking, because when she was young, she had to do a lot of chores around the house. It was traumatic for her, so she left us alone. One day... In her first few months in France, my mom saw a TV commercial for ready-made couscous. The brand, Garbit, which still exists today, by the way, claimed it tasted as good as it did over there. Over there meant Algeria. The couscous looked so good in the commercial. My mom thought, that's it, that's exactly what I need. So, I decided to go buy this canned couscous, couscous garbit, that was supposed to taste as good as it did over there. Your dad told me not to. I said I would go anyway. He said, well, I guess she should try it for herself. There's no point arguing. So, I bought this couscous garbit. As I opened the can, I spilled a little bit of sauce. I picked up some of the spilled sauce with my finger. I tested it. I almost vomited. Really, I almost vomited. I tried the can and your dad said, I told you so. But my mom wasn't done looking for the perfect couscous. A few months later, a friend told her about a Moroccan restaurant that she loved. So my mom went. The grains weren't cooked. You have to steam it. You have to take the time to cook it. But it was uncooked. And all this meat, these greasy merguez sausages, this chopped meat, everything was so oily. It was unbelievable. And I thought, never again will I eat couscous in a restaurant. But my mom might have given up on restaurant couscous prematurely. As more North Africans moved to France, many of them took over restaurants. In Paris, Kabyle people had already been buying and operating restaurants for decades. And eventually, beyond traditional French dishes, they started selling couscous. Here's Professor Nassima Ouramoun again. These places were not places for immigrants, you know, and not even an ethnic sort of offer on the market because there were brasseries that you even would find like, uh, you know, in their original sort of decoration and atmosphere. And you would realize that you can have a couscous because it's on the menu, but you could also have a very sort of a Parisian French brasserie uh, meal at the same time. One of the North African families that owned a restaurant were the Nizar. 
Bonjour, je m'appelle Mike Nizar, euh, restaurateur à Paris, essentiellement du couscous sous l'enseigne chez Bébé. I met Mike Nizar, one of the two brothers who run a couscous restaurant in Montparnasse in the west of Paris. It's called Chez Bébert, as a reference to Albert, his dad, who founded the restaurant at the end of the 50s. And this restaurant would change the status of couscous in France in a big way. Mike's family is Jewish, from Tunisia, which was also a French colony. They left Tunisia in 1956, when the country became independent. When they arrived in France, Mike's parents worked at a convenience store. But after colonization, as many French people started returning from North Africa, Albert had another idea. Et donc il y avait une vraie demande sur ces plats qui étaient coutumiers pour eux, le couscous. Donc il s'est mis. He felt that many of them would miss couscous, which had become an essential part of their routine. He opened the first location in a busy street. Business went so well that Albert opened a new restaurant, and then one more. In the 80s, there were five or six chez Bébert. The restaurant played a key role in taking couscous from an immigrant dish to one you would see on menus across Paris. Albert is also credited with popularizing a new, very French style of couscous. Nassima knows it well. There is a This recipe that is not encountered or that was uh, built up in France, this couscous royal, and the mix especially, for example, of this uh, sausage that comes from North of Africa, a merguez that we would never add to a couscous actually in Algeria. Couscous royal not only has merguez sausage, but four other different types of meats, as well as vegetables. Usually in North Africa, it's one type of meat. Here, the proposition that you find, especially in restaurants, is to mix, which is kind of bizarre. <laughs> Even Mike, whose family helped make it popular, said his mom would never serve it at home. But as Mike says, the French love it. And I was surprised to learn, so do some North Africans. Nassima told me that her Algerian uncle always gets couscous royal when he visits France. He calls it Parisian couscous. My uncle, we take this uh, uh, couscous royal because he loves eating and, you know, it's rich and so on. And it's a uh, different, uh, familiar, but different. And it's fun in a sense. And then maybe other uh, members of the family will opt for a more classic sort of uh, option, you know, on the menu. But... There's this idea that it's not the original one, it's not authentic, but at the same time, uh, it's not negative. The demand for couscous in France extends way beyond people with a connection to North Africa. It's become hugely popular in every corner of France. It's served in schools and hospitals, and it's adaptable to all kinds of different diets. In fact, French people like couscous so much that in polls about their favorite foods... It's been uh, pretty much consistent among the top three, and even if it's among the top five, it's still very significant uh, in a country that is known for their richness, for their culinary uh, sort of uh, proposition. Uh, couscous has made his way uh, for sure. But even with how popular couscous has become, it's still a point of contention, like with Couscous Gate. 
the far-right candidate who was photographed eating couscous, dismissed his critics by saying that it was French people who had lived in Algeria and then moved back to France that introduced couscous. He was trying to make it seem less foreign and, in the process, suggest the French deserve credit for the dish's popularity. On the other hand, one left-wing politician praised couscous as a symbol of cultural mixing in France. Regardless of politics, it's clear that couscous feels different. To people on both sides of the debate, it still doesn't feel 100% French. Which is actually kind of like my mom. To be honest, I've never really felt comfortable in France. I love being here, but there's always something missing. I couldn't tell you what it is. Only when I set foot in Algeria, do I feel relaxed. When I asked her about the most difficult part of living in France, she told me... The solitude. Your dad worked, so I was mostly by myself. I had to make my way here, make friends, be outgoing and all that. My own children don't really understand my way of thinking, my Algerian culture, my kids. They are little Frenchies. But one way of feeling more at home here has been learning how to make couscous. After her two awful experiences with couscous, my mom started making her own. With some tips from friends and family back home and a little practice, she was able to teach herself. And the couscous she makes is delicious. In North Africa, people say that your favorite couscous is your mom's. That's true for me too. I never learned to make couscous, just as my mom didn't learn from her mother. And honestly, I felt ashamed that I didn't know. After all, it's one of my favorite dishes, and it's also part of my culture, my Algerian side and my French side. So, recently, my mom gave me a couscous crash course. I think most people don't take cooking lessons with their moms, unless they were forced to. But at some point, we know how to do it without even thinking about it. She shows me how she takes the semolina, puts cold water in it, rolls it by hand, she steams it and then she repeats the process, rolling and steaming back and forth until the texture is just right. She says that's what makes good couscous. If you don't spend enough time rolling the semolina, it will be too hard or too mushy. She also makes a stew with vegetables and meat, spiced with coriander, ratel hanout and other spices to go along with the couscous. Le temps que ça gonfle. Là, je suis en train de passer ma main. Now that my mom showed me, I'll always have her instructions on hand for the day I finally make it myself. I'm the result of a cultural mix between two countries that have had a troubled relationship for two centuries. I have an Arabic first name, so French people sometimes ask questions about my origins. But I don't speak Arabic, so when I go to Algeria, I feel like a foreigner. Still, when I'm in France, eating couscous, I feel like I'm home.
Coming up after the break, how do Vietnamese people feel about France's contribution to their beloved national sandwich, the banh mi? As Samia finds out, it's complicated. Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. And you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. 
quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. On last week's episode, I dig into two exciting new cookbooks, Shabbat by Adina Sussman and Chili Crisp by James Park. James moved from Korea to America by himself when he was just a teenager. He felt lucky to find a family that hosted him and treated him like their own. We would literally line up and she would cut little corners of crispy chicken skin and like dangle in front of our front. Like, what do you say? I'm like, I love you. And then she would like feed all of us. Like a mama bird. Yeah. And I, I just love that I have that kind of memory. James later became obsessed with Chili Crisp, which is how he ended up writing a whole book about it. So you can bet that our conversation goes deep on the Chinese-inspired condiment. It's a great story. That one's up now. Check it out. Now back to reporter Samia Bazil in Paris. In the first part of the episode, we talked about how couscous traveled from North Africa to France, from a colonized land to the colonizer. But it can also go the other way. And that's what happened in Vietnam with French food. Before the U.S. was in Vietnam, France colonized the region for a century. French Indochina was made up of what we know today as Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, as well as a small part of China. The French left in 1954, right before the Vietnam War. But they left their mark on Vietnamese culture. And I can see the link between uh, the history with the big H, uh, the capital H, and the history of the food. It was very connected. This is Min Tam. I'm Min Tam Chan, and I'm a cook. And I've been uh, giving uh, Vietnamese cooking lessons for over 10 years in Paris. Min has also made it her life's work to understand more about Vietnamese food and its history. She does a lot of research and writes a blog about it. Her own family history is typical for many French Vietnamese people. Her parents were born in Vietnam during French colonization, when Vietnamese were required to speak French in school. And like in Algeria, under French rule, there was a lot of movement between the two countries. French people living in Vietnam, Vietnamese people moving to France. In 1961, Min's dad moved to Paris to study music. Her mom also moved from Vietnam to Paris and worked in a restaurant. That's where they met and where Min was born. And at home, we invited lots of uh, people and Vietnamese friends a lot for big meals. Food was very important in my family, first because we love to eat, so it's a good reason. <laughs> and every meal had to be at the table, and we took the time to eat together. And secondly, food is a strong emotional bond, especially for immigrants. Over these meals, the situation in Vietnam was a common topic of conversation. My father talked a lot about politics, the conflicts in the country, the separation between the South and North. Yeah, it was a very worrying subject for all Vietnamese at that time, in 70s, 80s. As men would learn, during French colonization, French and Vietnamese food became deeply intertwined. Many Vietnamese food words even come from French. The fried eggs, les œufs au plat. We say opla, or the cheese is fromage in French, and in Vietnam, Vietnamese we say fromage, or butter, beurre in French, we say beurre, or coffee, café in French, we say café. 
the French introduced all these foods to Vietnam. Fried eggs, cheese, butter, and coffee. Perhaps most important, the French brought their bread. You know, in the French uh, cuisine, you always have baguette bread uh, with uh, your dish. And the baguette was served as a side with a piece of pâté or pork uh, roast, pickles, mayonnaise or mustard, butter. And it was served to French, uh, French people who lived in uh, Vietnam. But the Vietnamese, they like to appropriate foreign dishes and to transform it in Vietnamese style. Over time, the French influence would lead the Vietnamese to develop a sandwich. It's become one of their best-known dishes around the world, the banh mi. Instead of putting cucumber pickles, they change it in carrot and daikon pickles. And they kept the pâté. It's very rich. A layer of pâté, some carrot and daikon pickles. We put the mayonnaise in the sandwich. And uh, pork roast, but in the Vietnamese style, you know, with the Vietnamese seasonings. Today, Vietnamese bakers have become experts in the bread that was introduced to them through colonization. By adding Vietnamese ingredients, they've invented something all their own. But some French people want to take even more credit for it, beyond the baguette and the pâté. There's a theory that keeps popping up, that the term banh mi came from the French phrase pain de mie. Pain de mie is soft bread. But Min doesn't believe this claim. It's not pain de mie because we don't eat pain de mie. Pain de mie is the white bread, you know, a very soft one. We hate soft bread. We like crispy baguette. So it's not pain de mie. <laughs> And mie is wheat. So it's literally wheat cake or wheat bread. This theory about the term banh mi is not the only instance of the French taking credit for something they probably shouldn't. There's also the case of pho. It's a noodle soup for breakfast in the north of Vietnam. And after 1954, it was popularized in the whole country. And I don't know why, but I heard from my father when I was a kid That pho came from pot of feu, the name of the French pot of feu. That's right. Some people believe that pho, now thought of as the national dish of Vietnam, is a variation on the French pot au feu. Pot au feu is a dish made with stewed beef, vegetables and broth. But the similarities to pho stop there. There is nothing in common. There are no noodles in the pot au feu. No carrot in the pho, but there are carrots in the pot of pho. And it wasn't just Min's dad who made this claim. She says many people in France have a similar idea about what happened during colonization. French people who have lived in uh, Indochina or who come from colonial families are often nostalgic for the country. And so they are so proud to say, yes, the pho, it's a, a popular Vietnamese dish, but it comes from a pot of pho. And I was so angry when I heard that. This reminded me of how the far-right member of parliament claimed that couscous is French, because Algeria used to be part of France. Some French people seem to have done the same with pho. 
but Min had her doubts. She set out to uncover the real history of the dish. I made some research about the pho soup and I wanted to know their origins. And I checked in my dictionary, a French-Vietnamese dictionary, edited in uh, 1992. So it's a Vietnamese publishing I bought from Vietnam. And when I checked the word pho in Vietnamese, the um, meaning was Chinese noodle soup. Chinese noodle soup. Min started connecting the dots. Noodle soup, it always comes from originally from China. It's a Chinese uh, dish. Noodles in general, it's an influence of China. So there is a very similar uh, dish in the south of China by the Vietnamese border. And it's not just about the noodles. The broth of the pho contains dry spices. And dry spices, they are specifically from China, like clove, fennel seeds, coriander seeds. We don't use dry spices in our cuisine, Vietnamese cuisine. There are certainly influences from the French cuisine in the cooking techniques and preparation of certain ingredients. But to call it inspired by a French dish when pot au feu and pho noodle soup have very little in common. Based on her research, Min concluded that the French were trying to take too much credit for pho, just as they did when they claimed that the term bon mi came from a French word. So why was her dad so ready to go along with the pot au feu theory? Min has an idea. We had 10 centuries, 1,000 years of dominations of China until the 10th century. And uh, we fought so hard to kick them, <laughs> to kick China out. And uh, the culture is so similar. It's Confucianism and Taoism. And we inherited from Chinese culture. We are so, so close Physically, in the philosophy, we don't like to admit that we have so many Chinese influences in our culture. And it's easier for Vietnamese to admit the French influence in the food, in the culture, because it belongs to the contemporary history. As it's the opposing cultures, it's more visible. So they had a positive view of France. Yes, I was very, very surprised because my family told me that the French were very kind. <laughs> and they brought education. They brought a structure of the cities and the countryside, architecture, the structure in administration. You know, the south of Vietnam was very poor and uneducated. So when you have some French who bring education and structure and richness for the country, it's okay. I asked my aunt, I told her, but aren't you upset to have a foreigner to govern and to rule your country? What did, what did they say when you say that? Uh, she said, no, it's not the same. You are the young generation, the following generation, so you cannot think like us. Because when we were there, we didn't see anything change. 
that pisses me off. My first recollection of the idea of colonization in Indochina is that I wondered how we could occupy a country or territory, cultivate it to exploit its natural and uh, human resources, and uh, settle uh, colonizers. With one nuance, after talking to my family about their thoughts on uh, French colonization, my feelings have slightly changed. History is history. So there's no going back. There was a historical context in which the era of uh, colonization existed in the world. So today, the concept of colonization wouldn't be acceptable. In her cooking classes, Min talks about colonization and its impact on Vietnamese cuisine. And she makes sure her opinion is clear. There's nothing wrong with the fact that the very popular Vietnamese sandwich is a product of French culinary influence. On the contrary, <laughs> if you look closely, the French part of the banh mi is the French baguette, the mayonnaise, and the pâté. That's it. And the rest is 100% Vietnamese. Are there any French sandwiches uh, that look like a banh mi in, in Paris? No, I don't think so. <laughs> and so the Vietnamese have reappropriated the baguette by creating a Vietnamese dish. Ben Mi is Vietnamese, not French. <laughs> For me, the debate over the French influence on Vietnamese cuisine is a reminder that France once colonized part of Asia. We don't talk much about it in school. I spent more time learning about America's role in Vietnam than France's. Meanwhile, many French nationalists still mourn the loss of Algeria. It remains a topic of contention in politics, and not just in the far-right party. Earlier this year, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, said that he wouldn't apologize for colonization. It has been an ongoing issue between the two countries since the end of the war. Min told me she's proud to be French, but she will always feel uneasy about the country's history of colonization. I relate to that. That's part of the experience of being both from France and from a former colony. You can never quite forget how you arrived here. That's reporter Samia Bazile in Paris. She hosts her own podcast in French called La Chamade. We'll link to more of her work in our show notes. Special thanks to her mom, Najat Bazil, and Isabelle Durier, who read the English translations. Next week on the show, comedians Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher, who are married, join me to talk about the role of food in their relationship and to give me advice on the role of food in my own marriage. That's next week. In the meantime, check out last week's show, which features two exciting new cookbooks and the stories of the authors behind them. There's James Park's Chili Crisp and Ardina Sussman's Shabbat. That one's up now. Check it out. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Samia Basile editing by Nora Ritchie our engineer is Jared O'Connell music help from Black Label Music The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie until next time I'm Dan Pashman and this is Anna from Utrecht in Holland reminding you to eat more 
eat better and eat more better. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of an infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. I know how to run a hair salon. But for small business insurance, I chose my State Farm agent. She's a small business owner, too, so she knew how to help me personalize my policies. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.